Hello, I'm Emily Vele, founder of Vespod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich. And you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. In today's market update, we focus on three key macroeconomic subjects for the next month that will matter for investors. Inflation, the role of central banks and interest rates, as well as energy prices and the gas situation. These updates are always super informative and aim to provide an understanding of what is currently driving stock markets and consider the outlook. You will hear from Axel Pignon, who is an equity product specialist manager at Carmignac. Thanks to our sponsor Carmignac. Carmignac is an independent asset management firm established in 1989 and their mission is to enable their clients to improve their saving needs over the long term. Thank you to the team for taking the time and energy to invest in our vision and support us to empower more women financially. I need your help. The Wallet has been named a finalist for Best Health and Wellness Podcast in the 12th Annual Lovey Awards. This is awesome, but we now need to win. Please take a second and vote for us. You'll find the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. The format of the session today, we will focus first on the big pictures, the macroeconomy, you know, what's, you know, the performance of the economies, and then we will deep dive into the financial market, the stock market itself. As Emily's just explained, we will start with macroeconomic outlook uh, and focusing on three main uh, subjects that will matter for market and for all of us, uh, actually, uh, in, the, in the coming months. The first one we're gonna talk, we're gonna cover is inflation. Then we're gonna talk about central banks, and then we're gonna talk about the gas situation. So if we just start with inflation, um, that's a concern for all of us. I mean, we see it on our daily life. We talk about, you know, the cost of living crisis. Where do we actually stand today? Yeah, inflation is a concern for us, for company, for governments, for central banks, but maybe. Let's start just by what is inflation. Inflation is really the loss of purchasing power over time. And if we look at the definition, it's really a measure of the rate of rising prices of goods and services in the economy. And over the year, what we had is over the last 10 years, 20 years, we have a very low inflation, like you can see on the chart. For instance, in the US, over the last 10 years, inflation was on average below 2%. It was roughly the same for the UK. But year to date, we had almost 9% of inflation in the US, almost 10 in the UK. And we can see the same pattern across all the developed economies. So what happened is that inflation may have peaked. We may have the peak behind us, especially in the US. In Europe, it's not the case yet. It will be by the end of the year, hopefully. But the issue is that it will remain, inflation will remain well above the average that we had over the last 10 years for several months and even maybe several years. And what um, what actually led us to to this situation, to this like super high inflation? I guess it was the 
we, we thought like with, with COVID that was sort of a transition and that we would have like, you know, a short period of inflation, but it's actually staying. Definitely. There were some, some, some temporary reason and there is some more structural one. But generally speaking, inflation is supported by three types of factors. Product cost, demand, and monetary and fiscal policy, which is something that is a bit less known, I think, by all of us. But what we had is that over the last months, factor filling inflation has been accumulating massively, leading to a massive snowball effect of inflation. And if we look uh, in the detail uh, of what have been, has been the main contributor to inflation, We have first, like you say, Emily, on the product cost side, the fact that after the COVID, we had uh, in 2021 a massive reopening of the economy that has resulted in a fast rebound in demand, faster uh, than in supply. And uh, after COVID, the issue is that we had some bottleneck. We, we, t we heard a lot about it. We had a shortage on semiconductor. We have saturation of transport capacity. And these bottlenecks happened at a time where uh, demand was superior than supply. So it has been feeding inflationary pressure across the world. But on top of this bottleneck, we had also some pressure on wages. Once again, link a bit to COVID because after COVID, we had a lot of labor shortage in many industries. We talk a lot about it in services, in restaurants. And this shortage led, uh, have led to wages going up and starting a point of what we called a wage price spiral, which is quite negative, and we will come back again on that. And so in terms of production costs, we have higher wages, high bottlenecks, and we had higher commodity prices, which started with oil and then accelerated with the Russian-Ukrainian uh, conflict. And uh, once again, I will come back to that. But a lot of pressure in production for companies. But at the same time, we had some pressure on the demand, on the demand front also, because during the COVID, we all accumulated a lot of savings. Um, and we have seen, like I was mentioning, some start of increasing wages. And all of these savings, plus the fact that we have higher wages, have been supporting demand and therefore filling inflation across the globe. And we have also this reopening effect. It has been putting pressure on production costs, but also on demand, because uh, once everything has been reopening, we were a lot of creating demand in services, especially tourism, etc. And once again, putting pressure on prices. So pressure on production, pressure on demand. And we had also, which is less known, like I was saying, monetary and fiscal um, impact on inflation. First, maybe on the fiscal front, we had what we called a fiscal stimulus. Fiscal stimulus is really when government decide to decrease taxation or to increase spending in order to support households and companies. And obviously, during the COVID crisis, government has shown unprecedented support to help both companies and households. And this money has been filling demand and therefore inflation. But we had also an impact due to monetary policy. And I will go into the details of central bank action later, but what we had is that over the last 14, 14 years, central banks have been injecting money into the system in order to boost inflation because we were below the 2%. And I don't know if you heard about the ketchup effect. You know, when you have a bottle of ketchup, you shake and first there is only a little. 
And then there is way too much. And it's a bit like what happened with central bank. The central bank have keep shaking the bottle, meaning injecting money, but no ketchup, meaning no inflation came out. And so they shake it even harder. And at the end, the ketchup come out and there is an inflationary rush. Why? Because all the money injected into the system is finally filling demand and then inflation. And therefore, in addition to everything that I've mentioned, we have an inflation that is super high and super sticky across the world. Thank you, Axel. I love the ketchup image. And for me, I imagine also, you know, this like huge cargo boat of freighters who's trying to move a little bit, but in the end, you try to maneuver and then it, it, it goes, um, it goes in, yeah, in the right direction, but a bit, a bit too far. Um, and that's actually going to lead me to my next question. So central banks, they are actually obsessed <laughs> with, with inflation. Um, can you maybe remind us of the role of, of central banks? I will take as an example the, the US central bank, which is the Federal Reserve, which is the most important central bank in the world. And what we call the US central bank, it's named the Federal Reserve. They have a dual mandate, meaning they want to they have as an objective to pursue the economic goals of price stability and maximum employment. And to achieve this mandate, they are targeting an inflation rate around 2% over the long term. Because indeed, yes, a bit of inflation is generally viewed as desirable. And across the world, all the central banks have pretty much the same mandate than the, reserve, the Federal Reserve. However, we mentioned it, currently inflation is almost at 9% in the US, 10% in the UK, so definitely not in line with central bank's mandate. And so what has the effect of such a high inflation and why central bankers are really willing to, uh, to bring down inflation, even if it at some point may hurt growth? Because there is some obvious and negative direct effect of inflation. First for companies, because companies will suffer from margin squeeze as costs are getting higher. But there is also some negative effects for household, because they will have less purchasing power, less savings as inflation is making all our income and saving less valuable for the future. And there is also an issue due to the fact that inflation is hurting the low-income consumer disproportionately uh, compared to the other. But the other issue with inflation is that when inflation is high, it starts to feed itself. And it's the risk of wedge price spiral that I mentioned during our last, our last conference. I don't know if you remember. Because this wage price spiral is really describing the phenomenon of price increasing as a result of higher wages. Because when workers receive a wage hike, they will ask for more goods and services. And this will turn up on causing price to rise. And it becomes then very tough to escape this inflationary loop. So really, inflation is at the center of central bank preoccupation because it's harder to fight inflation rather than recession. And so that's why they are very, central banks are very prone to act very quickly in order to, to stop this price spiral now. And they will do so to the detriment of employment, financial assets like equity, bond, real estate. And we can see it on the quotes of the Federal Reserve, of uh, Mrs. Lagarde in the ECB, uh, or Bank of England. 
because central banks need to slow down demand in order to tackle inflation. Thanks, Axel. And we, we have an, a great comment from Arca who says, great explanation. I was going to ask that wouldn't the financial institutions want to reduce inflation to increase public affordability of services, goods, and therefore incentivize people to spend more to boost the economy? Your explanation was great to set the context. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks, Arca. Um, now you, you talked about the, the actions and what can the central banks do and what are they doing at the moment. And maybe if you tell us a little bit more about what is then going to be the impact for investors and the, and the economy? Yeah. So central banks are doing everything. And one of the tools that they are using is the famous policy rate, the one that Emily showed you a few minutes ago. And with this policy rate, they can push interest rates um, towards... With this policy rate, they cannot directly decide which, which will be the interest rate for loans, for mortgage, etc. But they can definitely influence this interest rate and therefore reduce demand. And in the US, what happened, we spoke about the UK earlier, but in the US, the federal Fed fund... Uh, have increased from 0.25% to 2.5% in less than six months. And it may reach as high as 4.5% in 2023. It's completely unprecedented across the world. And such a rise is really aiming to slow the economy via demand in order to reduce inflation because higher rate will automatically slow the economy because the cost of loan is growing higher, resulting in consumer and in businesses also borrowing less. And if we take, for instance, a concrete example of real estate, higher rates from the central bank will lead to higher mortgage rates, especially if you have a variable rate for mortgage for your house, like we can see on the right, and in the case a lot in the UK. And therefore, as you will have a higher mortgage rate, it will slow down real estate demand, which at some point will reduce inflation, especially including the fact that, generally speaking, when you buy a house, you also buy a lot of furniture, at least for me. And so you are consuming a lot around <laughs> buying your house. And so it's just feeding inflation again and again. But rising interest rates has also an effect on financial market, pushing equity and fixed income market much lower which will impact our savings and therefore demand, because I mentioned it at the beginning, the high level of savings that we all, we all had after the pandemics was fueling inflation. So with lower financial markets, it's just reducing savings and therefore reducing demand. So once again, the main objective for central bank is to break demand at all costs in order to break this inflationary loop because central bankers prefer a short-term pain for the consumer rather than really having to deal with the risk of having economies to endure the long-term devastating, devastating effect of inflation. And unfortunately, they will not stop before inflation go back to the target of 2%. Now, if you go back a little bit to the sources of, of inflation, uh, what we're talking about the most at the moment uh, is the surge we had in, in energy prices. I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive um, conversation. It's becoming quite scary for, for all of us, for, for consumers, when you know, we start looking at, um, at our bills. And, and actually, this is linked to the gas situation. This is something that central banks cannot directly 
control. So how, you know, how does it, does it work and what is the, the, the way to sort of, you know, what is the lever in, the, in, in this situation? Yeah. And it's an issue because European gas prices are now about 10 times higher than the average level over the past decade. And in wow. the UK, you can see it on the chart, huh? electric prices are eight times eight time higher than the average level over the last 20 years. So what happened? First, uh, this energy crisis that is impacting oil, gas and electricity market has started before the Russia-Ukrainian uh, conflict. It's starting with the COVID-19 again, <laughs> because well, it's exactly the same uh, pattern than for bottlenecks, etc. With the pandemic, we had a, a very rapid drop in energy demand and therefore a cut in oil production. And when the demand came back to normal very quickly, oil producers responded very slowly, causing a supply-demand imbalance on the oil front, and so pushing oil prices higher. But after that, the price increased again in February this year, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And while governments in Europe were looking really for ways to import less energy for Russia in order to, to, to have sanctions for Russia, Uh, because just for you to have in mind, uh, uh, European Union was uh, imported 40% of its gas from Russia. So it was huge. Wow. But while Europe was looking at other ways, Russia just decided to cut supply over this summer in retaliation of all the international sanctions that has been put in place. And this has led to first a, first, uh, a, a very sharp rise in concern about the ability of European equi economies to get through the winter without limited gas consumption. But it has also another effect, which has been European is that the fact that European nations just stopped buying gas from Russia from day two. Uh, they needed to source supply from other parts of the world. And therefore, it has put pressure on prices across the world and hurting countries even with low dependency to Russian gas. And it was exactly the case for the UK, because UK is not very dependent from Russia, but UK households are facing some of the highest prices in Europe, mostly for structural reasons, because the country relies more heavily on gas than most of the European countries because they have an energy mix that is quite different with less nuclear, less renewable energy and more gas. But also the UK uh, is suffering from the fact that they don't have much capacity to store gas. So it's forcing the UK to buy a, sh a lot on short-term market where there is a great volatility on prices. We've looked at, um, you know, the energy, we've looked at you know, the primary concern for, in, for investors being um, and for household being inflation. Uh, we looked at the role of central banks and now we wanted to do a little deep dive and really look at the market outlook. So better, you know, once we have a better understanding of, of the economic situation, then let's look at what's happening in the market. Why has it been so, so volatile? Yeah, I think that for everything that we just mentioned will wait on growth and therefore is waiting on markets because gas situation is waiting on growth, um, inflation is waiting on growth, central banks are waiting on growth, but the consequence on growth will not be the same across countries because it will be more painful in Europe and in UK because most of the inflation is due to production costs energy crisis, while in the US, inflation is really linked to demand and the fact that we have this wage price loop that is pushing 
price uh, higher, but growth also higher because the, as the consumer keep consuming. And so all this back and forth on, okay, inflation scare, growth scare have created a very complicated start of the year for equity markets because this inflation tightening central banks, slowdown in grow growth is one of the worst cocktail ever for markets. Uh, and so, like I was saying, we have an alternative between inflation scare, growth scares, and even this summer, it was the complete opposite. We had growth hope, inflation hope. But unfortunately, in late August, in, repos, in response to all this enthusiasm that you can see on, on the chart, uh, Central Bank came back and say to the market, no, we will not be changing the course of monetary tightening anytime soon because we are facing sticky inflation and recession might be ahead. So be careful. And so that's why after the summer rest, <laughs> market went back to, uh, to negative territory. But in this kind of environments, yeah, there are some sectors that are more resilient than others. And we spoke about it last time in July. Uh, and the ones that are most resilient and the best performer year to date are energy without any surprise, staples, healthcare. And because these sectors are very well known to be defensive in tough macroeconomic conditions. But on the other end, the ones that suffer the most are the ones that over the last year have benefited a lot from the low inflation, low interest rate environment. Uh, and namely that sector like tech and tech related sector, because investors are really questioning today the ability of this sector to succeed in a completely different environment that is characterized not by low inflation but and low rates, but rather strong inflation and higher rate. But also on this chart, what could be surprising for you is that the UK appeared to be quite resilient and to even have outperformed the other markets. And there is several reasons behind. First, when you look at a chart, you always have to be able to, to look at the detail behind. And there is something that is hidden is the currency effect. Because on the chart, what I've done is what we call local currency, meaning that the S&P is in dollar, uh, the euro stocks is in euro, and the FTSE is in pound. And so there is a currency effect. But if I put all the performance in the same currency, you will see that the FTSE already does, does roughly the same performance than the S&P. But the difference of performance is also due to the composition of the index. And when you look at the UK equity index, you will see that it includes a lot of exporting companies that have been benefiting from the weaker GBP. And that the index is composed of a large weight of staples and energy company, which have outperformed since the beginning of the year. And finally, always take a step back and not only look at year-to-date performance. We should not forget that the UK has been underperforming all the index since the Brexit. So it's quite normal when you have a sharp decline like this, that after years of underperformance, you are suffering less than other markets. I mean, this can be quite scary for investors to, to look at. And I know, I mean, looking at my portfolio over, over the last three, last few months has been quite a ride. But, you know, I'm just trying to step back <laughs> and, and continue and, and, and stay invested and keep contributing to, to, my, to my portfolio. But I'd love to know what can we now expect for the coming month? Yeah, what we'll expect. So that's the key question. <laughs> uh, I, 
what we expect is always hard to just explain because we don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately, otherwise I would be very rich. <laughs> and it's great that you say that because, you know, each time if someone tells you, you know, the market will do that, uh, you know, the market is very unpredictable and actually, you know, no one can, can know what's going to happen no. in the stock market. Unfortunately, we cannot. But <laughs> what I can share with you is what market will watch. And if they will watch at the same indicators that they have watched since the beginning of the year, namely company earnings, so growth, and central bank's action. If we look at company earnings, what we call earning growth, any slowdown in GDP growth will wait on company earnings automatically and therefore on equity markets. And on the chart, you can see some jargon, which is EPS. It's the name of earning per share. And earning per share is just how much company are earnings. And we clearly see on the chart that there is a strong correlation between the GDP growth and company earnings. So I take the example of the US. If the, the US GDP growth is going below 1% in 2023, which is quite realistic, it will mean that earning growth for company, which is today between 5 and 10%, will go below 5%. And this, it's not yet reflected in equity prices, to be honest. So equity market today are, are quite somehow ignoring the impact of potential slowdown or recession. And we might see, therefore, this green line that you have on the screen coming lower in the coming weeks, weeks which, which will be negative headwinds for equity markets. But the other factor that market will look at is central banks and rates. And what will side of the lever of rates and central bank section, it's going back once again to inflation because higher inflation across the globe will mean more restrictive central banks and therefore monetary policies that are quite negative for financial market. And it is exactly what happened last week in the US. I don't know if you, if you have seen, but inflation figures uh, for August came out uh, in the US last week higher than what economists were expecting, leading US equities to their worst day since the COVID crisis. It's quite, it's quite crazy. And why? Because markets are just expecting that the US central bank will increase rate even more than initially expected in order to tackle inflation. And even if a lot has been done, huh? you can see on the right, and it was exactly the same chart for the UK that Emily has shown us. They have done a lot, but they will do more and even more. So to get a sense of how market will come, move in the coming weeks, you will definitely look at these two parameters. If we have good surprise on growth front, if we have good surprise on inflation, definitely market will go higher. Otherwise, we can go a bit lower than we are today because we need to price all this environment. Um, thanks, Axel. And that's, it's great to, to look a little bit of, at, you know, sort of the components of the stock market and, and companies' earnings are, you know, a very important measure for, for investment. So if you're not used to seeing, uh, you know, market, market updates, that's something you look at is the profit of, of the companies um, after tax. So that's a really important thing. And we, what, what we're going to try to do is maybe do a webinar on how to read financial statement and understand, you know, what, um, what is the PNL of the company? What is the balance sheet of the company? And really try to understand how, how companies are, are valued. Um, now, if we look at this outlook, can you tell us a little bit about 
what type of financial assets could potentially be more resilient um, in, in terms of, of inflation? Yeah, and I will start with equity <laughs> because we are experiencing a very unusual episode of volatility in equity markets. But over the long term, there is no debate. Over the last 20 years, investing in global equity has been the best way to generate return. And, okay, and just, uh, per- just one thing, Axel, before, maybe for some people who are not too sure about what equities are, uh, oh, yeah. if you can just give a quick definition, that would be amazing. So when you are buying an equity, actually, you are buying a company, a share of a company. And what will make equity going up or down? If I don't know, I'm buying uh, bank equity, it will depend on the earnings. So how how much the bank is making and how much I will earn thanks to the earnings generated by the company. Um, so really, when I'm buying, when I'm talking about equity, it's just I'm buying company, I'm buying the real economy and I'm, I'm not buying something, I don't know, that is not existing. No, I'm buying the real economy, I'm buying companies. And we have volatility and yes, 20, the last 20 years has been quite incredible and past performance is not a good indicator of future returns. But at some point, as I was saying, you are buying the real economy, you are buying companies. So Except if you just if you are just betting for the end of the world in the in the coming 10 years, I just can say that equity market at some point will become attractive and everything is risky, but you need to always have in mind the golden rule, diversifying your savings across asset classes, across companies, across sectors, across countries to keep a long-term investment horizon. Because yeah, if you just enter the equity market in January, You have been losing a lot of money, unfortunately, but we are here for a long time. Companies are here for a long time. They are not just trying to beat expectation over the last, the next three months. They are here for, for, for a while. So that's why you should have a long-term investment horizon when you invest in equity, because yes, it's quite risky and you have to be active. You have to be patient. And I said it last time, maybe supported by asset management expert because it's still a highly complicated environment. And in terms of sectors, meaning investing in equity, last time we discussed about several sectors that are quite resilient in period of inflation. We mentioned uh, consumer staples, we mentioned energy company, but there are also others. Generally speaking, definitely when you invest in equity today, you will try to favor companies that are able to survive in an environment where growth is slowing, where inflation will stay high for a while, meaning you will try to look for companies that offer resilient growth and pricing power. So companies that are able to pass on cost increase through price increase without impacting demand in order to maintain their margins. And can you give us maybe um, a few examples or if we can look at a few sectors? Yeah. We are on. We had an interesting comment from from Clemence. From Clemence, so we'll pick it up. Uh, it's it's quite interesting. They say that millionaires are made in a recession. Are there any exciting opportunities for regular <laughs> investors in this climate? <laughs> there is, there is, because we are in the real economy, and so there are sectors, there are companies that will survive. And definitely, it's quite basic, huh? but the healthcare sectors is ticking all the boxes that I just mentioned. Being able to survive in a low growth environment, having pricing power because the healthcare is offering defensive net. They are not sensitive to inflation 
And what we like really in healthcare is that it's relying on structural underlying trends. Healthcare sector is relying on aging population, on the fact that we have more and more chronic disease. I don't know if you, have, if you know, but 45% of the US population have at least yeah. one chronic disease. Um, we are also uh, uh, investing in the fact that there is an increasing healthcare spending, uh, uh, spending in emerging markets. So when you are buying the healthcare sector, you are buying all these structural trends. And these trends will support the growth of the sector, whatever the outlook of the economic cycle is. And I can just give one maybe quick example. When you find companies like pharmaceutical company like Novo Nordisk, which is a Danish drug maker. What is just fascinating is that the, the, uh, Novo Nordisk has been a leader in diabetes treatment and they are now focusing on obesity. And so it's a subject because almost half of Americans are expected to be obese by 20 2030. And obesity should account for up to 18% of healthcare spending due to related conditions. So it's a major society issue. And Novo Nordisk is working on, on a new drug named the Wigovi, which is a new generation of obesity treatment, which use a normal to regulate appetite. So when you are buying a share of this company or any other company of the healthcare sector, you are just investing in the future of trying to treat all these chronic diseases. Thank you, Axel. And uh, I mean, we, we we talked about one one company, but you have here a lot of different companies, and and we could definitely, you know, go and and look at at these different different sectors. Um, do you have another? I mean, I, we were when we were discussing about this update, we talked about um, the luxury market also, uh, which quite surprisingly can be quite resilient um, in, in in current times. Yeah, because consumption tends to be resilient. So last time we talked about staples, food and beverage, definitely it's quite obvious of why it is resilient. Yeah. But it's less, uh, less obvious for the luxury sector. <laughs> and what is surprising is when you look at the charts, the luxury sector has been outperforming during the last two crises uh, where we went into recession, namely the great financial crisis in 2008 and the COVID crisis in 2020. Why? Because luxury brands are often insulated in economic slowdown because most of their sales come from the super wealthy. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, luxury brands count on just 20% of uh, its clients for the majority of their sales. And they are super wealthy, very wealthy people. And like I said, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's not the high net worth individuals that are impacted by inflation and by recession. And so luxury industry is tend to be recession proof. Um, but also luxury company have the advantage of having a huge pricing power and therefore they are able to protect their margin from the rising cost. So, Overall, in period of severe macroeconomic turbulence, you will always find assets that will outperform better than the rest of the market. The only condition for that is really to be selective. And when I see these uh, these photos of, uh, I mean, if you're listening to the the podcast afterwards, when I see photos of these like Hermes and and, <laughs> and your handbags, I'm thinking it's much better to put the money <laughs> into a diversified <laughs> portfolio than just <laughs> buy one of these. Uh, <laughs> at least, at least for myself. Um, thank you, Axel. And maybe before we go into um, questions, do you have one last piece of advice for for our audience? Yeah. 
and and I talk about it last time, and I think it's it's the same because it's still very accurate. Equity investing, market investing is all about time, not timing. And when you have a massive market correction, like the ones we just experienced, the main risk is to sell at the worst moment. Yeah. Over the last 20 years, if you have invested £10,000 in the MSCI world, which is index uh, with, where you have all the country, developing country, you will have earned around £46,000. However... If an investor have tried to time the market and unfortunately missed only the 10 best days, it gains after 20 years will only be £27,000. So these 10 best days are very hard to capture and they tend to be very close to big set-off. Therefore, my advice is really in a highly volatile market condition like the one we are currently experiencing. It's everything about your investment horizon and not about the market timing. I think that's a great... Um Great lesson for investors, you know, time in the market versus timing the market. It's also so difficult to try to time the market. And trust me, I've, uh, I've, I've tried to do that. Um, <laughs> and, and it's actually a good way to, to lose money. Um, there's just, oh, if you can clarify, there's a question. I don't really understand what the last bit means. What's timing the market? Yeah, so good question. Timing the market is, okay, I think that we are at the trough of the equity correction, so I will buy today, meaning I will try to make the best entry point ever. Or, okay, okay, no, I'm just freaking out, everything is going down, I need to sell right now, so I'm going out of the market, I'm just taking my losses and not uh, hoping to get back. That's timing the market, trying to anticipate what will be the bottom, what will be the top of the market and trying to buy at the, at the best time and to sell at the, at the best time too. Generally speaking, you just tend to do the complete opposite and it's yeah. a catastrophe. <laughs> Everyone, huh? <laughs> Everyone. Uh, and I, I, I did that actually because I, <laughs> I thought I was, uh, you know, very early on, I had like just a portfolio of, of a handful of stocks and I was really like, you know, hands-on and super active and on my, my phone every day trying to, to sell at a high price. And then I was like, wow, it's still going up. Should, should I buy more? And then, you know, so it's, it's really, really difficult. And, uh, and that's why we have, you know, fund managers and asset managers who are also try, try, trying to do that and, and beat the market. But this is, this is actually ex extremely difficult, especially when you don't have time or if you, you know, a beginning um, investor. Um, thank you so much, Axel. We're going to take a few questions. Uh, so please feel free to to put them in the chat box. You can also unmute yourself uh, if you wish. You don't have to put your camera on. Um, and before the question, there's just a, a question from Jennifer who's asking, over the last five to 10 years, I feel like I've heard people say it's not worth saving as interest rates are so low. If saving fuels inflation, won't increasing interest rate, which will make loans more expensive, also incentivize saving as returns will be greater. How will this work in the context of central bank trying to reduce inflation? It's an excellent question, Jennifer, because that's the only good news of the environment we are currently in. We are going out of the very low rate interest rate environment that we have been experiencing since forever for a lot of us here. Uh, meaning that, okay, it will be tougher to borrow money, but for our savings, it's quite good news. 
because when we will put uh, money at the bank on the deposit account, we will receive more money than before. But then you have different kind of investment in terms of what we call fixed income. So meaning having return indexes on interest rate. There is different way and maybe it can be the topic of one webinar. It's more uh, a bit more complicated, but very interesting uh, because what you can do is just you can just you, we can borrow money, but we can lend money also lend money to states, uh, lend money to companies. And for that, we will receive interest. Uh, we will receive the, the, the coupon, the interest rates, the, the same ones that we are paying when we have a mortgage. Then we will be the lender. So we will be the one receiving money. And definitely as her rates are getting higher, we will receive more money if we lend money. And so our savings will uh, will earn a bit more uh, across uh, across everything. And what happened with the central bank is just that they are pushing for that. Um, so by interest by rising the key interest rate, they are rising all of us for all of us the the amount we can receive on our savings at the deposit bank account. Thank you, Axel. I see a few questions about like practically how to get started investing. I don't think we'll have time to cover that now, but maybe I can just say a, a few words. Um, so Claudia um, is asking, you know, is there a minimum I should have in investment before I start trying um, to diversify and find more investments? And Bonnie is asking, um, how do we actually invest in, in companies? So, I mean, before you, you start investing, it's, it's quite good to sort of build a plan and decide, you know, for how long am I investing for? We usually invest for, you know, for the, for the medium to long term, so for five to, to 10 years plus. Um, try to invest also in a tax efficient way if possible. If you're in the UK, you can look into different products like, like pensions, like stocks and share ISA, for example. And when you start investing today, I mean, in today's world with the investment platform, you can literally start investing with your spare change or with 25 pound a month. You don't need to have a lot of money. Um, and we would, um, tell you that it's better to invest in a diversified way instead of just picking one stocks or two stocks because that's a way uh, to also reduce your reduce your risk so maybe start with something that's a bit diversified and you can look at funds to get started and then potentially add some some stocks to your portfolio so we run separate workshops on that we're running a full bootcamp on on investing uh, starting at the end of october uh, but i'm happy to send you some resources after the session on how to help you uh, get started we have like a mini guide on Vespod and I can send, send that to you. Um, Axel, there's a, there's a question that's maybe more for you. Um, what do you suggest for those who just started to invest in the past two years? For investments in the tech sector, should we sell at a loss and reinvest in healthcare um, as recommended or as we discussed in the session or hold for longer term? So I guess that's a question around rebalancing around you know when do you change your portfolio when do you change your asset allocation given uh, the current market conditions i mean i guess you you need to have a view on the market <laughs> and keep you know this interest in 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 where you see um you see growth and performance of the coming months and years uh, no it, that's very interesting because uh, what happened on tech is Tech is definitely uh, an investment uh, that in my asset management company at Kaminiak we really like because it's well, it's quite similar with healthcare. 
meaning that there is a lot of long-term underlying trends that are supporting the growth of the sectors. But the issue is that it's more for technical reasons that tech has been going down this year. It's not because the prospect of tech sector is just uh, not good. It's just that in terms of valuation, it uh, tends to be high-valuation uh, high stocks. And in a non, an environment of rising interest rates, the market tend to tend to sell companies that have high valuation. And so what's about what we should do today about tech? So it's not my place to give financial advice, but definitely if we look at long-term trends once again, what I like about tech is that, like I was saying, long-term structural trends. But I definitely think that investing in tech uh, will be quite different uh, in the future than it was over the last 10 years due first to the fact that the low interest rate environment and the abundant liquidity uh, that we had have been pushing a lot of tech companies, healthy and not healthy. A lot of tech companies that just have a business model but no uh, earning no money, etc., had valuation going to the roof just because it was easy to get access to, to money. I think that in a different kind of world, definitely these companies that are not making any money, that are just what we call concept stock, you know, companies that have a great business model but nothing behind, will start to struggle. So you will need to be more selective in your tech investments. But as soon and as soon as the inflation trajectory will stabilize, and that's really what we are looking for, I definitely am convinced that there will be a return to fundamentals and that it will create a lot of what we call stock picking opportunities. Namely, just looking at companies that have super healthy fundamentals that I that are just super uh, profit uh, have high profitability, high stronger earnings, uh, but today that has been down 10, 20, 30, 50 percent for some of them because what we are seeing is that there is a lot of anomalies that are already appearing in the market. And some companies are trading at lower valuations than before the crisis, despite the fact that they still have high profitability, high margin, strong pricing power. And it's, for instance, if I can give an example, it's the example of the software space. When you look at valuation today, software, you can just pay software much less, cheaper than over the last five years. And it's not really logic because the industry is moving to what we call a cloud-based subscription model, uh, meaning that you will have to pay every year to have your software, uh, namely if you have a software, I don't know, from Salesforce, from, uh, from Google, from Microsoft, everything, you will pay an annual fee, which will offer for the company resilience and pricing power, which has ideal attribute in an environment of rising inflation and zero growth. And what is interesting also is that there is a structural trend behind software is that we are moving toward a digital, digital transformation. And I'm convinced that it's just the beginning and we are convinced too at Carmignac. Uh, today, only 10% of business IT spending have moved to the cloud so far. So, and this figure is just expected to triple by 2025. So that's why, for instance, Okay, we have all suffered, and at Kaminak, it's also the case on the tech sector, but we are more selective than we used to be, and I think everyone should be. Uh, but there is still some great opportunities to, to catch up, uh, especially once again, if we have a long-term uh, investment horizon. Thank you very much, Axel. Maybe we can, we can 
pick one uh, or two more questions. There's there's a question from Laura um, around currency exchange rate. Uh, so you know what sh what should we expect um, about the maybe pound euro dollar um, in in the coming months to years. It's highly, it has been a highly complicated subject, a currency, <laughs> since the beginning of the year. Highly volatile, like equity market, like every asset, to be honest. Um, what we should look at is the drivers of a currency move. And what happened since the beginning of the year is that it's the dollar that has been strong against all currency. If you compare the dollar versus the euro, the dollar versus the pound, the dollar versus everything. It's just the dollar has been very, very strong. It's because it has been supported by different factors that have investors, when you look at currencies, they are looking at several things. They are looking at the growth differential. So you will tend to buy the currency of the countries that have the higher level of growth. And it was the case in the US. US growth is definitely higher than in the rest of the world. And it will remain the case. So it's advocating for a strong dollar uh, going forward. Dollar also has been supported by the fact that you are looking at the differential uh, uh, of interest rate. And you have higher interest rate in the US than in the rest of the world, at least in uh, in the uh, Eurozone, because the Fed is very active to tackle inflation. And so I have quickly uh, increase the interest rate. You are also looking at what we call a safe haven status for the dollar. Uh, when everything is going bad, what people are doing is just putting their savings in dollar because, okay, we find it super secure, uh, wrong or not, it's just pushing the dollar higher. And the last thing that have been supporting the dollar is more technical, but it's just that as we have been trading all our gas and oil supply from Russia to other countries, all the other commodities tend to be denominated in dollars. So we tend to, all countries have buy a lot of commodity in dollar, pushing once again the dollar higher. So there is a lot of factors that will keep the dollar higher than in the rest of the world, especially due to the fact that the, Fed Reserve, um, the Federal Reserve will need to keep uh, raising interest rate because growth is still super strong. The consumer is still super strong in the US. So they will, go, they will need to go harder than in the rest of the world. When you look at the GBP, uh, you have a bit the opposite. You have a growth momentum that is not super exciting, uh, a bit like in Eurozone. We do expect negative growth uh, in, in the UK starting Q4 and Q1 of next year. And OK, we have some good news uh, following the, the, the plan uh, announced by the prime minister, Mrs. Trust. Uh, which is super likely to just tam inflation over the short term. And it was super needed to have this plan in order to help household uh, with this short term inflation. But the issue is that this kind of fiscal stimulus over the medium term tend to just be failing inflation. And we have seen it. Fiscal stimulus is failing inflation. So you are just solving a needed short term issue but you are just pushing back the issue. And so at some point, we might see uh, effect due to this fiscal stimulus that we are seeing in the UK, but not only uh, everywhere, uh, that will fuel a second round inflation effect. And when we look at interest rates, yes, the Bank of England is super aggressive, 
but the Reserve Federal, for instance, is even more aggressive than the, than the Bank of England. So it can put a weaker GBP compared to the dollar, for instance. So many, many factors. Currency is something, it's maybe the most complicated thing in markets. <laughs> And maybe that's something we could look at in, uh, in, in our next session, um, yeah. if you, if you're up for it, Axel. Um, I know it's time. Uh, there's, there's two questions on, um, on, on real estate. Um, we can probably get back to you after, after the session. Um, Axel, if that's okay, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll write your question. Perfect. I know yeah, 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 Eleanor yeah. and Patricia will, uh, will, uh, will send an email to everyone with, with the main uh, takeaways. We're going to write an article about this, pod about this webinar, send you the videos and stuff so you can watch and get your, your, your main takeaways. For me today, the more important is, of course, we're talking about inflation. We're talking about the cost of living. So we are just keeping an eye on this and reviewing our budgets, reviewing our, our investments um, and really trying to squeeze what we can. <laughs> I know it's going to be super tricky, but if we can keep up with our investments, there's going to be um, great opportunities in the market. Also, when we think about investing, Axel said it, but we're investing in companies and that's why we're looking at companies' earnings and that's a good way to get inspired to find more investment ideas. And sometimes we feel very detached from our investments and our pension, but maybe it's the right time to also start looking at what am I actually investing in? Um, there's going to be some potentially, again, great opportunities, companies that are going to be quite resilient. We talked about consumer staples last time, healthcare, maybe the luxury sector, all these companies that will be able to protect their margins. And next time we can also probably talk a little bit more about what makes a company, how a company makes money and how, you know, how we can then value these, these companies, what's the difference between value and pricing. These are really interesting conversations to have. And finally, investing is for the long term. Um, we are not timing the market, not trying to, to buy at the right time, sell at the right time, but keep investing. Think about, about the long term. So Axel, thank you so much. Um, again, it was amazing. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was great to be with all of you, all your questions, all your excitement. I'm excited to announce our very first Vespot Festival, taking place on October 9th. Money Matters, in collaboration with the Financial Times, is a full day of inspiring money talks, workshops, great food and music at the NED in London. Get your tickets at vespot.com events through the link in the description. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wallet. I highly recommend you listen to this episode. We recorded it with Maxim Karminiak about breaking down investing barriers and championing women. Please share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people find our show. Don't forget to vote for us in the Lovey Awards. This is pretty awesome, but we now need to win. Please take a second and vote for us. You'll find the link in the show notes. Join us again on Thursday for another episode of The Wallet. I'm catching up with brilliant podcaster, Instagrammer and mother of three, Clemmy Telford, and we will discuss how to overcome a personal financial crisis. <laughs>